So here with us today, Bob Cooney. Uh, he travels the world and probably is not sure in which time zone he is right now, but I'm sure he's in, he's in for a good conversation and a strong opinion on our industry. So welcome, Bob. Uh, good to see you again. So good to be here, Peter. <laughs> okay, so um, if I read your LinkedIn description, it says that you're helping organizations develop go-to-market strategies to connect great entertainment products like VR, for example. How did you end up in that and how did your career path look like so far? Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been interesting. I started out, I started one of the first laser tag companies in the world in 1989. Okay. And, um, and that took me to the, into the entertainment industry. And one of my biggest customers at the time had found a virtual reality product and they wanted to launch it in America. And we had a presence at the IAPA show in Orlando, the big theme park show. And they asked if they could use my booth to help launch the product. And, um, and it launched to, it was called Virtuality. And it was the first real consumer facing VR product, an arcade product. And they had a game called Dactyl Nightmare, which was like this 8-bit graphics platform game. And, you know, you'd shoot a crossbow. At, uh, it was a PvP game and you'd shoot a crossbow at the other person. And then a, eventually a pterodactyl would come and pick you up and lift you up and drop you and give you that sense of fear of heights that, you know, nice. people find so compelling in virtual reality. Anyway, we wound up building virtual reality and laser tag arcades in malls in 92, 93, 94. So that gave me my first taste of it. Um, and then I went on to co-found a company called Global VR, which had the first VR arcade product that was uh, unattended. Um, we used a boom-mounted display. It was a counterweighted boom to handle all the weight of the optics and the headset at the time. And we sold thousands of those in arcades all around the world. And, um, and so I've always been on the bleeding edge of technology and location-based entertainment. And I remember in, in when we were doing the laser tag and virtual reality arcades, uh, Andy... Halliday, who was the president of Edison Brothers, the, the customer, um, we sat back and watched it and we said, well, it would be amazing if you could combine laser tag and virtual reality. <laughs> and then in 2015, I went to IAPA again and saw zero latency out of Melbourne, Australia, and they had created the first warehouse scale multiplayer free roam VR system. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I dreamed about 25 <laughs> years ago. And Indeed. I never thought I'd see it. And so uh, I, I, grabbed Tim Roos, literally physically grabbed him at a giant bear, bear hug. And he had no idea who I was. <laughs> and, uh, and he's just, you know, an Australian guy. And he looked up to me and was like, who is this crazy guy? <laughs> and I said, dude, I said, I've been dreaming about this for 25 years. Congratulations. I'd like to help you get this to market. I said, I've made every mistake you're about to make in the next two or three years. Mm. I'd love to help you avoid those mistakes. And yeah, and he bought the pitch and let me work with him for two years, getting the product launched. And that led to, you know, then I was watching all these other companies bring products to market or try to, and most of them didn't know anything about the amusement industry, the location-based entertainment mm -hmm. industry. They came from software, they came from gaming, yeah. and they really needed guidance. And so people would reach out to me and say, hey, can you help me do this? Can you help me do this? And that's how I got here. Okay. And um, which companies did you help um, meanwhile? Yeah, so um, while I was working with Zero Latency towards the tail end of that engagement, um, I met uh, the guys from Hologate. And so they were about to go to the EAS show, which is the European amusement show. I think it was in 2017 and um, hooked them up with a company called Creative Works, which is a big laser tag arena manufacturer. And the founder of that company used to run one of my laser tag arenas in the 1990s. Oh, okay. uh, Jeff Schilling, really good guy. And so, yeah, so I part, paired them together and they fell in love and they wound up, you know, we wound up putting together a distribution agreement and they launched at IAP in Orlando in 2017. Probably the, 
probably in my mind, the, the greatest product launch that I've seen in this industry in 25 years and sold like 70 systems in the first four days. And, um, and that really validated the market for a lot of people. And then other companies saw that and they're like, oh, wow, there's a business here. And then you saw the floodgates open and done work with minority media um, and their chaos jump product, help them launch and find distribution. Um, working with Virtuix and their Omni Arena, Omni Arena now, which is a really great multiplayer esports game. Um, no, yeah, uh, with Jan. Yeah, with Jan. Yeah. And um, I do some work with Spree, which used to be Holodeck, which just rebranded. Um, and so, yeah, I've got, I don't know, there's probably eight or 10 companies that I work with on some level on ongoing mentoring programs. And then I run workshops um, with companies. Just yesterday, I was working with a company out of Moscow called. Um, uh, another world. And mm -hmm. we went through some go-to-market strategy workshop for okay. them and product strategy, content strategy, stuff like that. Trying to help them find, it's a really crowded market, you know, what you'd call a, a red ocean. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do is help companies find kind of niches within that red ocean where they can differentiate and not have to compete on price. Because if you compete on price, it's a race to zero. Nobody makes money and everybody goes out of business. Yeah. But uh, since, uh, since the, the LBE industry is booming or it seems like it's booming, uh, you know what to do these days. Yeah. And, and, and it's booming, but it's also super competitive, right? There's probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 free roam companies. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, Hollowgate started that trend of the four player tethered system. And now there's a dozen companies in that space. And I don't know that there's room for that many, um, no? you know, and so I think you're going to start to see some, is that, is it that competitive out. on a global scale? Um, it is, it's, uh, it's hyper competitive right now because look, there's not much barrier to entry, right? With the tools that we have to develop like unity, really easy, accessible content There's the unity asset store. You go buy your zombies and you plop them down in a level, you know, you edit some levels and now all of a sudden you've got a zombie shooter. Like it's really not hard to build a VR experience. It's mm -hmm. hard to build a really good game, yeah. but because VR is so compelling to people, even the early systems that the early products that were out there any like none of them would have made it in the console market okay the games weren't good enough but because it was vr people did it they were like oh my god this is amazing and and there's a lot of false positive reactions i think from people when you test vr but ultimately the games have to get better in order for them to sustain and we're starting to see that now that's the the thing that i'm the most excited about is we've crossed over from tech demos into real game development now. And there's some really good games coming on the market. Okay, and in terms of uh, recurring visitors, is that something that you see? Are people coming back frequently and more frequently? So, you know, I think there's a bit of a false narrative around frequency of visit and, and re replay, right? I think that the average family entertainment center, and I'll speak for the U.S. market, because that's the family entertainment center market. There's probably 10,000 locations in the U.S. that would qualify as some sort of a family entertainment center, whether it's a trampoline park or a bowling center yeah. or whatever. And the average, according to IAPA, the average visit is three times a year. Okay. Right? So, you know, how much replayability do you need to build into a game if you've got significant traffic? I don't know. There are some products that are being really successful. The Virtuix, Jan's uh, Omni Arena, they're showing, I think, 30% replay 
Um, I know zero latency was in that 30 to 35%. So I think if you build really good games, people will come back and play. I talked to uh, Pete Stearns from Dave & Buster's recently, and they're testing the Omni Arena in two locations. And he said they're seeing a really high level of replay, which surprised him, he said. And I asked him why it was, because they do eSports. So they mm-hmm, run tournaments, yeah. and there's a $100,000 prize pool this year. And I asked him if it was just the game or, and the experience, or it was the competition. Yeah. And he wasn't sure yet. Like, nope. So I think it's still really early, and we're trying to figure out. But no, I think okay. Jan's published some statistics, 40% of their customers come there just to play their game. And so when now all of a sudden VR is starting to drive destination traffic, that becomes a game changer in the entertainment industry. Okay. Yeah. Um, I follow you on LinkedIn, obviously, of course. And um, I see you always have a strong opinion about our industry. Uh, do you, where do you see this going? Because sometimes I, I get the feeling that you're not convinced that VR is going to be something Yeah. um, I think I started out pretty skeptical just because I've been in and out of it so many times. Like, you know, I went to IAPA in in 2015 researching an article that I was going to write saying, VR, don't buy into the hype. (laughs) And then I saw zero latency. I'm like, oh my God, it's hair. (laughs) And so I I was like, all right. And that started to change my opinion. But I've also seen a lot of business models that don't work. And Mm -hmm. I think the, you know, the VR arcade model where you have, you know, eight Vive booths and somebody charges by the minute or by the hour, I think it's really hard to make money in that business. Mm -hmm. And I think that the ones that are making money have gone bigger, 15, 20 booths where they could do corporate events and groups and things like that. And so I think that business is struggling and a lot of operators are holding on. They've bought themselves essentially low-wage jobs, Mm -hmm. like buying a Subway franchise or something. Um, But they're passionate about it and if they're doing what they love, then that's okay. I think that um, so I'm not a fanboy. I'm not a VR fanboy. I'm not in love with VR. I'm in love with what VR could become. Mm-hmm. I'm also terrified of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. But no, I think, look, I think there are business models that are emerging and those business models will sustain the product um, through our lifetime. There's what no kind doubt of business now. models then? Um, I think that you're starting to see in the family entertainment center business, which I think is where the bulk of the economy is in this space, in the entertainment space right now, you're starting to see large operators build more VR inside their arcades. And I think that ultimately you'll see in 10 years, every arcade game will be VR. Yeah. Like there's no reason for it not to be. It's great experience. It's immer- more immersive. And if you think about the history of arcade games, we started out with cathode ray tubes, right? CRTs. And then we went to these big rear projection screens, these 46-inch, 50-inch rear projection TVs back in the early 90s. And those games were more immersive. And we went yeah. to a bigger display technology because it went more immersive. Then everything went to LCD and flat panel because it was more um, reliable and more efficient. And now we're going back into this deep immersion cycle with virtual reality. It's just another display technology, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so there's no reason that the whole arcade industry won't adopt virtual reality as the primary display technology over the next five to 10 years. And you're seeing major arcade game manufacturers now are looking at VR and coming out with VR products. And so I think that absolutely within 10 years, all of it will be VR. Okay. And do you think that, uh, or do you know that the um, art location-based entertainment centers, are they profitable or do you know some that are already profitable? Well, look, I think that um, in Eastern Europe, there's a lot of these VR parks that are popping up where you have you know, 10, 15, 20 different VR experiences. A lot of them are coming out of, you know, China, the, the, these, you know, fairly cheap hardware platforms mm-hmm. that I think people struggle to maintain and the content is questionable, but all that stuff's getting better. And I think they're, those are making money. Some of the free roam guys are making money. Some of them aren't. And the problem is right now, I'm not sure anybody knows why. Like it's anytime you roll out retail, 
20% of your locations are going to be really high earning, 20% are going to suck, and the rest are going to be in the middle somewhere. And even the most sophisticated companies like AMC Theaters, I've spoken to them, they can't predict which of their theaters are going to be blockbusters and which ones are going to lose money. Yeah. So you have to open a lot of locations to figure it out. And, and I think that um, the chains are making money. Dave & Buster's is a public company. They rolled out um, the Jurassic Park ride, Jurassic World ride, VR ride, a four-player simulator that was built by VR Studios out of Seattle. And they said that it actually added measurable earnings per share as a public company, that one ride to their bottom line. And so there are absolutely are business models that are making money. Main event rolled out a product called VRsenal, which does Beat Saber. It's an unattended, automated VR, uh, virtual reality arcade game cabinet. They rolled it out across their whole chain, over Labor Day weekend in America, they ran a promotion called Saber Day, <laughs> and they gave away free um, games, and their places were packed all weekend. They said they couldn't, they, they were turning away people. And so I think that using VR strategically right now as a big entertainment chain is driving traffic, and ultimately as people become more aware of it, then you'll see more people getting into it. And yeah, there's definitely profitable business models. Okay. Um, yeah, talking about money, earlier this year, or in the beginning of this year, Sandbox VR, they raised 68 million. Um, uh, and now recently they did another round of 11 million with a lot of celebrities. What's the strategy behind that? Yeah, so... Uh, that's a great question. It's a question that everybody's asking, um, not only in the VR community, but in the venture community. I've spoken to probably a half a dozen venture capitalists, and I've asked them that question, and they all look at me and they shrug their shoulders and they say, we have no idea, but Andreessen's smarter than us. Yeah. And I, look, and, I, and so, you know, my take on that, I've thought a lot about it. I've spoken to the guys at Sandbox, but, you know, they're, they play their cards close to the vest, <laughs> um, is Andreessen's looking to make a market. That's what they do. And they've got a lot of money. And so what they probably looked at it and said, you know, we love the idea, but you need a lot of money. Here's a bunch of money. What the structure of that is, I have no idea. My guess is it was some equity and venture debt combination. Um, and then, you to know, me, to me, it looked like a big marketing stunt, like an influencer investment or something like well, that. Well, I think the second round was yeah. absolutely, there was a fund that celebrities invest into startup companies through. And my guess is Andreessen brought them in and said, okay, because the whole thing started with Kanye West playing sandbox and putting it on his Instagram or Twitter channel, right? And it blew up. And then, and so the, San, the, the, the Andreessen guys came and saw that and saw the green screen and the mixed reality videos that they do that can share. And they're like, oh, wow, this is a viral marketing sensation. So they invested a bunch of money and then they used their leverage to bring other celebrities. Now, Justin, my guess is Justin Timberlake will be playing sandbox somewhere yeah. and putting it on his Instagram and 40 million people will see it, right? It's a brilliant, brilliant marketing strategy. And, and you know, and when you have Andreessen on your board, that's what you get. And so, you know, I think, I think that those guys are going to be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, because if you see um, in cinematic VR then, a lot of um, big names uh, or, or producers or directors try to, to get a lot of big names for their productions because that sells better. I think that's probably the same. Absolutely. And I, and I think in this world of, you know, if you think about VR, the average audience um, in the free roam space is, is 20 to 40 year old, right? And like, so that's the millennial, hardcore millennial audience. And they're all about influencers and following influencers. And yeah. if they're celebrities that they follow, tell them to go play Sandbox because it's amazing. They're going to go play Sandbox because it's amazing. And I think it's a brilliant marketing strategy. Yeah. And in terms of marketing, um, 
do you see any opportunities for brands to to join the LBE industry? Because I think um, people are already going there. People are willing to consume VR. The hardware is in place, and sometimes you have to wait before it's your turn to play the game. Yeah, it's a really good question. Is there an opportunity for brands to connect with or engage with their audience? I think there is. I think the challenge in location-based VR or any out-of-home media play is reach right? Mm -hmm. It's fairly low throughput. And what advertisers want is reach. And um, it's hard to get reach and out of home. Uh, I think that um, the other side of that is the impressions are gold. Like they're so valuable. If you go in and you have an amazing time in a virtual reality experience and you relate that experience back to a brand, that impression is probably worth more than any other impression you could ever pay for as an advertiser. But I think that because it's an emerging media, the people that buy media have jobs and families to support and and getting them to buy invest in risky emerging media is hard everything like, like digital media is everything it's, it's infinitely measurable now right mm-hmm. and so you buy google you buy instagram you buy facebook you know what you're getting you know what your cost per thousand is you know what your cost per sale is and in vr it's more like how do you how do you take a vr impression and turn it into a sale and then track that you really can't yeah but in terms of i don't think that brands are only looking for reach these days but also for engagement and if you can bring like a compelling story for example the mom and the dad are going to the shopping mall and the children are going to play in the vr arcade and they are waiting there or maybe they walk around the shopping mall but maybe they are waiting there they are ready to buy or ready to consume a piece of VR. So if you then can bring them like a very compelling story about a brand, I think that's an opportunity. No, it's definitely an opportunity. And it's like also it, a new way for it, monetization for the for, for the LBs because they are actually selling advertising space. Yeah. The, 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 so I, I was with a company called Ecast. We built the first broadband connected digital jukebox network across bars. And we ultimately installed 10,000 touchscreen jukeboxes in bars. And we launched an advertising platform on that jukebox, first one of its kind. Um, and it was fully interactive. We licensed the double-click engine, which ultimately Google bought and built into there. This is back in the early 2000s. Um, and it was really hard to get advertisers to buy out-of-home advertising. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, so, so the guys that buy, it's really... This might be this might be in the weeds, but the guys that buy interactive are buying web and mobile. The guys that buy outdoor are billboards mm-hmm. and right and and so this is digital, but it's out of home. And so who do you sell it to within the buying agency? Like there's there are actual real tactical challenge that you have to go through if you want to sell ads into that market into LBE. And because it's such a fractured environment and there's no massive footprint that you could just roll up and buy, yeah. you're selling. You know, it's it's just. It's just, it sounds like a good idea. It's really hard to put into practice. Okay. Um, so you um, you wrote uh, the book Real Money from uh, Virtual Reality, where you share insights and wisdom to, the gui- to, uh, to guide location-based entertainment operators. Um, are you working on something new? Yeah, so that book was um, really more for solution providers, the guys that are building games and arcade games and products to sell. And there was some insights in there from the op- for the operators. Um, but after I wrote that, I started talking to more operators. And now what I've done as a, my second book is an operator's edition of that, which is really about how do you select VR for your location? How do you market it? How do you price it? How do you promote it? How do you operate it? How do you like all of the operational things and best practices in there from talk to hundreds and hundreds of operators around the world that are both making money and losing money with VR and trying to 
distill that into insights for the operator community. Mm -hmm. um, and that book will be out soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> if I stop going to conferences and actually <laughs> lock myself in a room somewhere, I'll get it done. But I was hoping to have it done at this show and or at IAPA. It's, it's at least going to be December, January now. Um, and then I'm working on a bigger book, which is um, called Being Virtual which okay. is really about the societal impact of virtual reality on all of us and all the industries that we don't think about how they're going to be affected from fashion to transportation to education to medical entertainment and everything. And that book, I, I would like to launch that at, I, at CES in 2021. Okay. Uh, and then maybe one last question. Um, do you have theories about the hero's journey in VR? So. Uh, do you want to elaborate on, on, on that? Yeah, it's, it's actually one of my um, more passionate points, which is um, when you get to storytelling, we've got 100 years of storytelling in film, video, television uh, that is on a screen that we are separated from by what's called the proscenium, right? It's the space between us and what we're viewing. And that keeps us detached. And so we wa we're comfortable watching somebody else's story. And usually when we're watching stories, it's the story of some hero. And, and Joseph Campbell created this, uh, named this thing called the hero's journey. Um, and very famously, he was friends with um, George Lucas. And George Lucas took those series theories into the script for Star Wars. And now every action adventure movie since then has been following these steps of the hero's journey. And you can Google it. And, and if you haven't, you should check it out. It's fascinating. Um, but I think that with VR specifically, instead of watching somebody else's journey, instead of watching Luke Skywalker's journey, I'm inside the experience, right? Now I'm a central character inside a 360 degree experience, innately, I want that to be my experience. I don't want to see somebody else's experience unwind. And I think that's why VR film has failed so far. I think that most of it has been telling someone else's story and I'm in a 3D environment watching it and it doesn't make sense to me because I'm inside of it. What I want to do is I want to experience my journey. I want to be the hero of my story. And I think that when you think about, so Joseph Pine and, and, and Pine and Gilmore, created this concept of the experience economy that we're in now, right? They said we went from the, the, the commodities through, you know, whatever to experience economy. The next one after the experience economy they predicted, and this was in 1990, was the transformation economy. And I think we all believe in the VR industry that VR is transformational technology. And what we want to be able to do is transform ourselves by experiencing these journeys. And I can do that if it's my journey, not someone else's journey. And I think what storytellers have to figure out how to do, and it's going to take some time, is put me in a situation that allows me to make decisions, to feel those, the impact of those decisions, and then experience my own growth within that, that, that scenario. And that's when I think VR goes from just pure storytelling into potential transformational technology. And it's going to take time to figure it out because we have to create all new constructs on how to entertain with VR. And right now we're still stuck in trying to move 2D technology into this 3D immersive space with those best practices, and they just don't work. Speaking of a transformation economy, do you believe, um, or do you see us living in the oasis in 2045, or uh, is that something to, to be afraid of? I, I think it's something to be really aware of, and mm. I was just in, in Moscow at the Open Innovations um, Conference, and I spoke about that, which is the, the fact that Facebook at OC6 announced their Horizon. version of the matrix, in my opinion, right? Which was this live maps thing. And live maps sounds really innocuous, but what they want to do is they want everybody to have AR glasses with cameras so they can map the whole world indoor and out. 
And that gives them control over what we see and what we do and how we feel. And like the amount of control, they've already proven that they're willing to manipulate audiences from kids, right? In 2014, I think they were busted saying to advertisers that we know how to manipulate teenagers when they're the most vulnerable to buy your products. And that's been well documented in the Guardian newspaper. And then the whole, um, the whole election thing with you know Brexit and the US presidential election. And so I think that with great power comes great responsibility, someone said. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and I think that when you start building wor alternate worlds that we live in, um, and you put the responsibility of that in the hand of a media company who makes money by selling advertising, I think it's terrifying. Okay. So thank you very much, Bob, for this uh, great conversation. My pleasure, Peter. Thank you. <laughs>